0: The coronavirus pandemic has had a huge effect on everyone. Whether you like it or not, there's a high chance we may experience more epidemics and maybe even another pandemic in our lifetime. With the way the world is rapidly urbanizing and globalizing, we are building and moving into areas where animals once called home. COVID-19 isn't the first disease that moved from animals to humans, and it certainly won't be the last. With climate change and imminent threat, we will be forced to live in closer proximity to each other. Rising global temperatures will mean insects such as ticks and mosquitoes will have a wider range to live in, and animals will be forced to move and migrate into areas inhabited by humans. Learning from the lessons of the past is what science has done for centuries now, from John Snow and cholera to Edward Jenner and smallpox. We should similarly look at the way certain countries have dealt with the pandemic in their country, see where they may have gone wrong, and what may have gone right, and build upon these foundations. With the possible end to this pandemic looking like it may just be on the horizon we should already be looking ahead to the next one while looking back on the lessons of the past you may have heard of a couple countries across the news during this pandemic so far and we're going to look at a couple today while some countries got it so wrong such as the us and brazil some countries are being hailed as success stories and should be models we learn from namely new zealand and south korea While of course each of these countries are vastly different in demographics culture politics, and geography, there are some key points and policies that we can pull from each example that will help us gain an understanding of how these countries battle the virus. We should learn from the lessons that each of the nations are providing us. get into the main bulk of this podcast, I just want to start by saying that a lot of these raw numbers that I'm going to be reading out to you are taken from the Johns Hopkins University website, and they are taken as of April 19th, 2021. So if you would like to go check out the current statistics as to whenever you're listening to this, you can go check out the Johns Hopkins website. Let's start with the elephant in the room, the United States. As of today, the statistics for the United States are as follows, 32,404,463 confirmed total cases with 6,862,172 active cases and a total of 581,061 deaths. The U.S. stands out as number one in the world in all these categories, but these are some large numbers, so let's put it into perspective to better understand what has happened. The U.S. population stands at about 332.5 million. This means that over the course of the pandemic, per million people, almost 100,000 people have caught the virus at some point. That's about 10% of their population, meaning that 1 in 10 people in the U.S. have caught COVID-19 at some point. The case fatality rate, which takes the total number of deaths and finds out the percentage of deaths compared to the total number of cases that have been confirmed, stands at just about 2% in the U.S. And to really put it into perspective, in 2020 alone, COVID-19 was the third leading cause of death right behind cancer and heart disease. Without pointing any fingers at people or organizations, let's rewind to the start of last year, to the start of the pandemic, and look at the timeline with what went wrong for the U.S. The first confirmed case of COVID-19 was reported around the 21st of January 2020. In the US, of course. And this was not long after the first reported case in China on the 31st of December 2019. Many people waited while they expected the US government to respond to announce something. And life pretty much continued as normal for the next couple of months. However, in March later that year, the cases began to spike and many people began to pass away. I'm sure the videos and photos of body bags being removed from the hospitals have circulated around the internet and you've managed to see them at some point. Life as Americans knew it was never going to be the same. Despite this, the government downplayed the virus, with President Trump stating that it would all be over by Easter. We know now, through the media and inside information, that has now become available to the public that the Trump administration at the time made an active decision to downplay the virus to avoid panic. This was widely regarded as the first mistake that was made by the government. A lot of action could have been taken before March to prevent the virus from being widespread. After this, there was a lot of confusion around mask guidance. Health experts first came out and said that wearing masks was not necessary, and this was mainly to help the health workers who were experiencing a shortage of masks at the time and desperately needed personal protective equipment in the hospitals. As we know, there's still an ongoing issue with masks in the United States and even around the world, but the evidence is clear. Yes, masks do decrease the rate of transmission between people. Putting um, President Trump's remarks and these issues with mask wearing um, aside, Many experts argue that the fragmented response of the government, where the federal government left it up to the local levels to deal with the pandemic, was ultimately the turning point from bad to worse. Drew Altman stated on the Biomedical Journal that the federal government was basically playing a backup role in this situation. He further goes on to state that the state's role in public health is a tradition in the U.S., but during a crisis, A national response would have allowed for a more coordinated effort to control the virus, where the government could reflect on regional and state circumstances and act on them. Because of this, we saw inadequate tracing, isolated and quarantines for individuals who had the virus or had been in contact with individuals who had the virus, and because of this, testing was flawed and slow. The isolationist approach the US took meant that the CDC were left to develop its own tests and lagged behind much of the world in producing its own tests. In an article on the Scientific American, Tanya Lewis partly attributes some of this blame to the FDA and how slow they were to be able to approve the tests, even some of them that were being made by private companies. By the end of April, there were over 1 million Americans that had been infected with the virus and this number was still rapidly climbing. This all led to different states and different areas struggling at different points in time. We saw New York and California initially struggling with it and then Texas and Florida. And then later on, we saw the Midwestern states and the mountain states struggling with it. Different governors were responding different ways. Some were implementing mass mandates, others were not. There were protests about it and it was absolute chaos. And even long after many countries had managed to battle and get through the first initial wave of COVID-19, the U.S. was still recording record numbers of cases by the day. What we can see from this response, or lack thereof, from the federal government, allowed for this virus to get out of hand before the system could even gain control of it, and has led to now the US leading the world in many of the categories you wouldn't want to be leading in. regarded as a severe failure, Brazil has suffered greatly from this pandemic. Doctors Without Borders describe Brazil's response as the worst in the world. As of today, the statistics are as follows. 13,943,071 cases with currently 1,178,030 active cases and a total of 373,442 deaths. This makes Brazil the country with the third most confirmed cases and the second most deaths, right behind the US. The case fatality rate in Brazil stands nearly at 2.7%, higher than the global average of 2.2%. So, where did they go wrong? A lot of criticism has been directed at Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro for downplaying the epidemic in Brazil, going as far as discouraging and even shunning containment measures. He has promoted treatments that have no scientific backing to them. Manny Nicolai, the general director of Doctors Without Borders, stated in an interview with The Guardian that, quote, there is no coordination in the response, there is no real acknowledgement of the severity of the disease. Science is put aside, fake news is being distributed, and healthcare workers are being left on their own. When Nikolai was asked if the Brazilian government had responded worse than any other country, he agreed, stating, quote, Is it the worst by not implementing what is known? If so, I would say yes. Let's rewind and figure out how Brazil got to this point. Brazil was thought to be well-equipped to deal with the challenges of the pandemic based on its record of dealing with past public health emergencies. Brazil is known to have a health system that provides wide coverage to people across the country. In early March of 2020, Brazil declared a public health emergency and the Ministry of Health began to urge the government to push for cancelling public events and implementing social distancing measures, as well as mask wearing. The response in Brazil soon took a turn for the worse. As state governments in Brazil battled day and night, The president's position on the virus was clear. He told officials to lift social distancing measures after calling COVID-19 a quote, measly cold. After contracting COVID-19 himself, some may say ironically, President Bolsonaro posted a video to Facebook showing that he was taking the anti-malarial drug known as hydroxychloroquine, which has now been proven that it has no effect on dealing with the symptoms and helping people recover from the disease. Despite being widely criticized, Bolsonaro defended his actions and even once Brazil passed 100,000 deaths in August of 2020, he posted again on Facebook that Brazil was doing well, and that they had no shortage of resources, equipment or medication. By mid-December 2020, it became clear to most people that there was no organized response from the government to fight the pandemic. The lack of a coordinated response still sees Brazil lack adequate testing and tracking. It meant that during the start of the pandemic, Brazil was struggling to import essential equipment such as ventilators, and now we are still seeing similar shortages of syringes for distribution of vaccines. The health workers have been left on their own to deal with an ever-worsening situation, and the authorities supposedly in charge of looking after the people of Brazil have done nothing. We have seen how a lack of coordinated responses from the US and Brazil have ended up severely affecting their populations. Political battles have caused people's well-beings to be left in the shadows, and the denial of scientific evidence by the leaders of these countries have allowed the virus to get out of hand. Even though the US ramped up testing to try and get a hold of it, it was already too late. Fragmented responses have proven to be catastrophic, and nations need a clear strategy based on evidence to be able to make progress within their borders at fighting COVID-19. Let's move on to the countries that have provided the world with a blueprint on what we should do when dealing with future health emergencies. The first reported case of COVID-19 in South Korea was on the 20th of January 2020, and was one of the first countries to report a case outside of China. In February, they were also one of the first countries to experience a drastic spike in cases. However, due to certain policies and the way the country has responded, they have been widely looked at as a success story, and I believe we should take many lessons from the Korean response, culture, and system. The numbers today are as follows. 115,195 total confirmed cases, with currently 8,166 active cases and a total of 1,802 deaths. Purely by the numbers, we can say that they aren't the best, but there are some key points to understand the way in which the country responded. Furthermore, the case fatality rates currently stands at 1.5%. Yes, okay. Korea is a small country with a population of 51 million in comparison to, say, Brazil or the US. But there are some things we should understand about the Korean response and why the world looks at it as effective. By late February 2020, there was already over 5,000 confirmed cases in South Korea and was one of the highest in the world at the time. While cases in other countries continued to rise, the curve in Korea flattened. Something changed. So what did they do? Let's rewind a few years back to 2015 when Korea was experiencing a different coronavirus epidemic, MERS or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. The issue lasted less than two months in South Korea. But there was a big panic. The virus infected 186 people, killing 38, which was the highest of any country outside the Middle East. When the epidemic ended, Korea learned from the lessons of this virus. On the 17th of February 2020, South Korea sat at just 30 cases. But already behind the scenes, the government, in collaboration with biotech companies, already began producing rapid testing measures and distributing them to health centers and hospitals around the country. Dr. Kim Woo-joo, a doctor at the Korea University Guru Hospital, deemed as one of the coronavirus experts in Korea, their Anthony Fauci if you would like, stated on an interview with Vox that because of MERS, they had learned how essential the diagnostic tests were into tracking and tracing, or better known today as contact tracing. When the spike of cases occurred in late February, the health system was ready to test and track these cases. Here's an example. Patient 31, as they are now known, was tested in Daegu, a city in Southern Korea, as they reported symptoms related to COVID-19. The health workers asked her where she had been and who she was in contact with recently. The government quickly contacted these people, tested them, and tested those who were in contact with even those people. Even if they were not showing symptoms, they were tested and asked to isolate at home, and if they were diagnosed, they were also treated from home. In this short period of time, they ended up testing 9,000 people just related to patient 31. After this, the government ramped up testing nationwide and opened free testing sites as well as drive through testing, collectively totaling over 600 across the country. These testing centers tested almost 20,000 people a day by early March. They even tracked individuals who tested positive and disinfected the areas that they had recently been in. While contact tracing methods have been impressive, there was one key element to all of this. After the MERS outbreak in 2015, they changed the law to allow government to access per- personal data and security footage of a person during an epidemic. This allowed the government to follow the path of infection and notify the public to stay away from these areas. The citizens would receive text message alert about this and soon maps were being made online to see if a person with COVID had recently been in an area and therefore people were able to evaluate the risk of infection before going somewhere. While tracing an individual's every movement may seem controversial to some, the perception in Korea is that they are willing to sacrifice for the greater good of society. By late March 2020, South Korea tested over 300,000 people at the time, and this was more than any country. Neighboring countries such as Singapore, Taiwan, Vietnam, and Hong Kong learned from this model and began aggressive testing campaigns to be able to quote-unquote see the virus. While it may be difficult to test the same percentage of people in, say, the US, it still allowed Korea to avoid aggressive lockdown measures that would damage their economy. Some experts suggest that these testing measures would have helped many countries around the world avoid strict lockdown measures. It would have allowed for normal society to continue to function while the health authorities found ways to contain the virus and stop it from becoming so widespread. Many countries saw the benefits of mass testing a little too late and when they did try to start widespread testing. The virus was already out of control. Korea managed to gain control over the virus in just over a month at the start of the pandemic and this has allowed them to avoid tragic numbers of deaths as seen in other places around the world. New Zealand may well be one of the best examples of how you can contain COVID-19. The statistics for their country are as stance. 2,597 confirmed cases with 61 active cases and a total of 26 deaths. At certain points across the pandemic, New Zealand would go a few days without reporting any new cases. These are quite astounding numbers when you look at it. The fact that New Zealand has only had 26 deaths, let me say that again, 26 deaths is quite amazing. Yes, while this small island nation has a population of only five people, there are some lessons that we can learn from them. Even with the resurgence of the virus, the country has managed to effectively implement policies to deal with the upcoming issues and is something we should look at in detail. The New Zealand Influenza Pandemic Plan has existed since 2002 after the first SARS epidemic. This plan is publicly available on the website of the Health Ministry of New Zealand if you would like to read into it. It's a long 190 page document where there are some very interesting policies regarding planning and preparedness. Since then, this plan has undergone substantial revision which has allowed for their government to be prepared to act if anything were to cause issues within their borders. They have a six-phase strategy for planning and preparedness. It goes something like this. Step one, plan it, which is seen through the document. Step two, keep it out, which is to do with border management and to stop the virus from entering the country. When it does enter into the country, step three is stamp it out, which is to do with cluster control and tracking and tracing. Step four and five kind of group together, they're both called Manage It, where step four is more about pandemic management. So as the pandemic continues to progress, what do you do? And step five is again called Manage It, and this is to do with post-peak. So once the pandemic has peaked in the country and you're starting to come down from the worst of it, what do you do to stop it from getting worse again? What do you do to work on what you have done and to stop it from breaking out again? And step six is to recover from it. Which is mainly to do with, as, as it suggests, recovery. This is mainly to do with economic recovery packages and other factors that may help the country rebound from such an issue. These are largely based off the WHO's 2013 revised pandemic model. The document from the government of New Zealand outlines key goals that they wish to achieve that encompass human, social and economic factors to ensure that all parts of the country can recover together. They began to implement this plan in early February of 2020 which prepared hospitals for a rapid influx of patients and included border control measures to delay the arrival of the pandemic. The first case in New Zealand was reported on the 26th of February 2020. New Zealand lacked the contact tracing capabilities at the time, so by mid-March the leaders made a change to their strategy. They implemented a country-wide lockdown on the 26th of March, exactly one month after the first reported case. After about five weeks of a nationwide lockdown, The cases were rapidly declining already and allowed for New Zealand to move from an alert level 4 to an alert level 3, which led to about 7 weeks of the citizens staying at home and carrying out minimal daily outdoor activities. By early May, they had managed to identify and isolate the nasn known COVID-19 patient at the time. And on June 8th, this allowed them to move to alert level 1. In about 103 days, they had managed to contain the virus. Many parts of the country were operating at pre-COVID levels, and their mortality rate was 4 per 1 million, which was the lowest among OEDCs, or what we know as high-income countries. They reported only 22 deaths by July of 2020. A lot of praise was given to the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Adder, for her ability to coordinate the response from the government and effectively use evidence and science to make decisions as to when to start reopening parts of the country. I think the main thing that we can gather from these examples is that we need to be prepared. It's not that we do not have the capabilities to deal with dangerous viruses and pathogens. Science has allowed us to understand diseases to an extent that we can understand how they work, their mode of transmission, and how to produce vaccines or cures for them. There are global frameworks that exist. A global fragmented response has meant that a lot of countries have had to focus internally. Potentially, a more coordinated global response would have led to less severe outcomes of this pandemic. This is highlighted by the US's decision to withdraw from the WHO during the end of the Trump administration. What could have happened if a global organization like the WHO had worked together with China, the US, and other world powers to help the world? South Korea and New Zealand had clearly learned from the lessons of the past and had clear and concise policies to enact that allowed them to effectively deal with the virus and minimize the effects of it. On the contrary, a lack of plan from the U.S. and Brazil has caused severe consequences for their citizens. With vaccines slowly being distributed around the world, we can hope for a more coordinated global effort to be able to inoculate people and to defeat this virus. But we are already seeing inequities and issues when it comes to this. While we now have a cure for the virus, We can see how having measures in place to deal with a pathogen before we have a cure has allowed for some countries to be successful at containing this pandemic. I grew up playing a video game called Plague Inc. where you create a pathogen and your goal is to infect and kill the world. I know it sounds quite cynical, but I would recommend playing it. It allowed me to see how quickly a disease can get out of hand if there is no response, or a lack of a coordinated response. And especially with the global world we live in today, A global response was needed much sooner than we thought. By the time the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic, it had already confirmed what many people and experts knew at the time. I hope this podcast has given you an insight into the ways in which some nations had battled the pandemic across the last year and a half. There's a saying I've heard since I was young, and this was first told to me by my doctor, caution, not chaos, prepared, not panic. And I think this is a lesson we should all take from COVID-19. Infectious diseases will forever be something we will have to deal with as a species, so let's not ignore it. For some reason, we all lack the foresight to be able to look far ahead into the future. But after this pandemic, let's not make that same mistake again. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Chris Padon, and I'm signing off for now.